Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Okay, if you've got your Bibles, let's open up to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. And again, the broad theme of what we're going to be doing this quarter is looking at the idea of law and covenant, how the moral law fits into our covenant relationship with God. And so we're going to start out today looking at the covenant that God made with Adam, okay? Um, so I, there's, a, there's a lot of disagreement even among scholars in the Reformed camp about exactly how some aspects of the moral law and covenant theology interact. Um, I would say there is certainly confusion and disagreement at more the popular level of just Christians trying to flesh this out in their life. And at the end of the day, that's what we really care about. How do we apply this in our lives, and how do we teach others to apply it in their life? Okay, So we're going to look at even just this whole idea of covenant. What does it mean? And some people would say, well, it's funny to start in Genesis to talk about covenant because uh, certainly in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, which is what we're going to be looking at today, it doesn't even use the word covenant. Okay, but um, if you've got your Bibles, I mean, keep your finger there in Genesis 1, but flip over to Hosea really quick, okay? Um, and don't be afraid to use the table of contents if you have to to find Hosea. It's one of those minor prophets that you can accidentally breeze past, especially if you've got a smaller Bible. But go to Hosea uh, chapter 6, verse 7. Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. And listen to what the prophet says. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt falsely with me. And so God speaks from Hosea saying, yeah, there was a covenant with Adam, and he broke it, and now people are breaking the covenant I have with them. Okay, now that's, that's maybe the clearest uh, word specifically related to that it was a covenant with Adam. But we want to talk about just first point, what even is a covenant? Okay, and here's just kind of, I mean, again, different people will define it different ways. Here's my very bottom line, simplified, layman's definition. It's a solemn relationship with conditions and consequences. A solemn relationship with conditions and consequences. Now, you think about just that definition for a second. Let's say walking in this morning, you met uh, one of the janitors that works in the building, and you just said, hey, how you doing? You know, and you introduced yourself. You told him your name. He told you his name. You could say in the most broadest way, technically, that's a relationship. I got a relationship with that guy. I just met him. And yet nobody would call that a solemn relationship. There's no sense of conditions, right, and consequences. We don't use the word covenant a lot in modern-day language, certainly outside of the church. But if anybody was going to use the word covenant today, 21st century, outside of the church, where would you probably expect to hear that word used? At a wedding, all right, in a marriage ceremony. And again, what is a marriage? It's two people entering to a relationship, and it's a solemn relationship. And there's conditions, and there's covenants. You make vows to one another. And in a sense, if you keep the conditions, you're probably going to be blessed. If both people keep it, it'll be a happy, healthy marriage. If you break the conditions, you probably won't be happy and healthy. You'll probably be miserable, probably divorced, okay? Um, that's what we're talking about. That's what you see here in the Bible. Okay, now, let's see how this plays out in the Garden of Eden. Now, different people will call this, you know, the Adamic covenant or the covenant of works or the covenants of creation or the covenant of life, different titles. I don't really care what you call it, okay? It's the covenant with Adam. That's the simplest way, I think, to think about it. So, Genesis chapter 1, look at verse 26. 
Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So when mankind was first made, he was literally made into a relationship. Okay, a couple of things you see here. Number one, God is a relational God. When you look at Genesis 1, 26, and it says, let us make man in our image, that doesn't give us the full-blown doctrine of the Trinity, but it at least makes room for it, that God, even in his essence, is a communal being. You know, and sometimes, I don't remember if you ever thought this way, but I remember being a little kid growing up, going to Sunday school and church, and you think about why did God create people, and I don't know if anybody ever said this to me, or I just kind of thought it on my own. It's like, well, God must have been lonely. Right, God made people and animals and plants and all that because he was bored and he was lonely. But that's really a stupid, immature, non-biblical way to think. God made people because God, in a sense, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it was like he was having this eternal party. There was joy, there was love, there was fellowship. And it was such a great party, they're like, let's invite other people. Well, nobody else exists, so let's make people. So really, the essence even of creation was a very relational creation story. They're made in his image. And that's the idea of, because if you flip over, just do this really quick, Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, after the fall. Okay. Look at Genesis 5, 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So what is this whole idea of image and likeness? It really has the idea of, you know, sometimes you might see somebody and say, man, he looks just like his dad. She looks just like her mom. She's the spitting image of her mother. There's something so similar. It's like they've been marked. Now, God has no physical body as we do, certainly in the beginning. And so what does it mean that we're made in His likeness, we're made in His image? It has to do with our relational qualities, our spiritual ability to commune with one another and to commune with God. Right? i tell you one thing that you will not find. If you walk around Briarwood this morning, on Friday morning, probably one of the things you will find, you'll find different things like this, different Bible studies, different seminaries, go, you know, classes happening. People reading the Bible, trying to understand more about themselves, trying to understand more about their relationship with other people, trying to understand more about their relationship with God. I tell you what you will not find in this church or anywhere else. Any monkeys or apes or gorillas or dolphins or blue whales or possums or donkeys or whatever you think the smartest animal is on planet Earth sitting around having a Bible study like, why am I created? Why am I here? How do I commune with other donkeys in a nice way? How do I get to know my creator? It doesn't happen. Because part of what it means to be made in the image of God is we have this relational capacity for, for spiritual communion. So that's part of what it means to be made in God's image. Skip down to verse 31. We're made for relationship. And in the beginning, okay, verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now, we know that God doesn't get tired Right? I mean, Isaiah 40, 28 talks about God. He never faints. He doesn't get weary. He doesn't need rest. So when it says in Genesis chapter 2 that God rested from his work, that he finished his work, it's more the rest of accomplishment. It's like if you had a long, hard day doing a lot of yard work, cutting the grass, whatever, and then you get done, you're like, I'm going to sit on the front porch and have a big glass of iced tea, and I'm just going to look at the yard, and I'm just going to enjoy how nice it is to have a finished work. That's what God was doing. 
He's enjoying his creation. And, but part of what he's also doing is he's modeling this idea of Sabbath. Okay? Now, he, he's giving good gifts to his children. He's looking at creation. And when it says it's very good, part of what that means is, I have made a world that's perfect for mankind. For mankind to grow up in, to enjoy, to blossom in. That's the kind of world that I've made. Okay? So, um, there's the covenant. Second point, there's conditions. A true covenant will have some sort of conditions that have to be met. Okay? Um, So, in chapter 2, skip down to verse 15. There's this perfect world. God makes man. And then look in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Okay, now just pause there for a second. One thing that oftentimes gets missed when we talk about Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is that so much of the emphasis is on this repeated theme, God saw everything that he made and it was good and it was good and it was good. It's repeated over and over. Because a lot of times, even when well-meaning Christians come to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, they want to spend the majority of their time and their energy and their focus arguing about theistic evolution or Big Bang, or how did it happen, or how long are the days, or was it 6,000 years, or is it longer? And listen, please hear me. I'm not saying there's not an important place to fight those battles. But that's not the main purpose that Genesis chapter 1 and 2 was written to tell us. Kind of the main overarching thing to tell us is about this covenant relationship, that God is such a good God that he made the world for us to live in, to thrive in, to enjoy him, and enjoy all his good gifts. And it was perfect. And yet we ruined it. So notice, he says, hey, Adam, I got a job for you. I was talking to a college student just the other day, and he was supposed to have a summer internship. It didn't exactly work out the way that he thought, so he had moved to this other town. He didn't have much to do, and he basically was just living in this little one room by himself, and he had almost nothing to do. And he's like, I started to get depressed. Now, I'm not sure if this guy's a Christian or not. He, he might be very close to becoming a Christian or he might be a baby Christian. But part of what I was trying to say to him is, listen, people were made to work. People were made to be active. People weren't just made to sit around in a dark room by themselves all day and watch Netflix and play, you know, video games or whatever. There's a place for entertainment. But we're, we were made to be productive, to do things. And so work is not part of the curse. Work is a good thing. That, that was one of the conditions. Hey, here, here's my bottom line to sum up the conditions of the covenant that God made with Adam. Okay? Adam, you're going to serve me, but I'm going to satisfy you. I've made this wonderful world, and if you will just obey me and serve me, you will be so satisfied. You'll be happy. I satisfy you. That's my part, Adam. And you serve me. So it starts off. Adam, I've got a job for you to do. Then verse 16, and look around. There's all these trees and everything you can see. You can eat to your heart's delight. Okay? L- literally, it says this. In, in the Hebrew, it, it says it like this. You can devour, devour. You know, in Hebrew, they didn't have exclamation points. So you wanted to emphasize something, you said the word twice. He's like, Adam, look around. All the fruit you see, devour, devour. Just have a feast, man. Enjoy your life. And then verse 17. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So even in the creation covenant, there was one prohibition. Now here's the question for us to just think about for a second. Why? What, what, what was the essence of this prohibition? What was it about this one tree 
that God said you can't eat from that one tree. And here's the thing, guys. As best we know, there was nothing poisonous about the tree. There was nothing so unique about that one tree that God's like, no, no, that, that tree will kill you. I mean, even we got the whole Bible now, right? You read the whole Bible, and it's never like when you get to the end of Revelation, it's like, hey, we're going to tell you the answer to the trick question. What was wrong with that first tree? It never comes up. Because here's the bottom line of what was wrong with that tree. It's just that God said, trust me. I'm God. You're not. That's got to factor into this relationship is that when I say jump, you say how high. And so if I say don't eat from that tree, you just don't eat from it. You don't have to know why. You just trust me because I'm such a good God. I'm blessing your socks off. I'm satisfying you in every way that you just trust my character that when I speak, you don't doubt me. That's the essence of what our covenant relationship with God is supposed to be. Now, keep your finger here in Genesis and flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 6 for just a second. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and skip down to verse 10. Now this is later. God's bringing the Israelites out of slavery into the promised land. But notice what he's going to say to them. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Is it the Lord your God? It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Now, there's a warning there that I think applies even back in Genesis chapter 2 is this. When God is drowning us in blessings, there's a subtle danger that we will start to take credit for it. There must be something so good, so right, so wise, so powerful about me that I really kind of deserve this. And then it goes to our head. And then we start making stupid decisions like, well, maybe I should get a vote in this matter of these rules. Why do I have to listen to God? Why do I have to always submit to him? Now listen, think about it. I mean, God's like, hey, Adam, I just made you out of dirt. You didn't invent trees. It wasn't your idea to have fruit. It wasn't your idea to have vegetables. It wasn't your idea to do any of this. And yet, if we're not careful, it leads to a place of pride. Now, look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed it up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. A couple things for us to notice here. This woman, in some sense, is the crowning peak of creation. It's like the last thing he made. right? He waited to the last day to make man and then even waited after man to make woman. But again, part of what's being signaled here is this. God is a relational being. 
And God wants us to be relational beings. We're supposed to live in fellowship. And so that's why it slows down and it accentuates the way to really do life and to get the most out of life is in relationship. Yes, with one another, but even more importantly, with God. Okay, now, verse 24. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, there's a little bit of speculation here. But uh, the implication seems to be that if Adam and Eve had lived long enough in this covenant relationship, if they had obeyed, if they had served God, been satisfied been God, been happy and content, that at some point they would have kind of been established in this perpetual state of innocence. Now, that, there's speculation there. Some people disagree with that. But here's the question. You know, well, how long was it? We don't know. But then you ask the, the flip side question. Well, how long was it before chapter 3 starts? And the best theologians would say probably the very first day of creation. They probably, I mean, I think St. Augustine said maybe they made it six hours. Now, I don't know where he got six hours from, okay? But the best theologians would say probably literally the first day of creation, Satan comes in the garden, he attacks, and they gave in. Now, just a side note, I had one of my kids one time. Um, this is when he was much younger and I'll not say his name to protect the not-so-innocent, and he'd gotten in trouble for something, and I was talking to him about it, and he said, it's not my fault, Dad. He, this is a Broadwood-educated kid. This is what you get in elementary school. He said, it's Adam's fault. It's Adam's fault that he ate that apple, Dad. And I said, buddy, I said, uh, let me kind of put that back on you. I said, do you think if you would have been in Adam's shoes, you would have done any better than him? He's like, oh, yeah, Dad, I would have never touched that apple. And, uh, you know, I said, no, buddy, I've been living with you for about six or seven years now, and I know that, yes, you would have touched that apple. You probably wouldn't have made it as long as Adam. And that, that's helpful for us to remember. Look at our own life, even as Christians, with the Holy Spirit in us and how many times we fall and go back into sin. And so there's a covenant, has conditions, it also has consequences. So let's look at the consequences. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, Satan's tactic then and all the way up until today is this, is to drive a wedge between God and his people. That, That is Satan's goal. Even though he knows he's defeated, he wants to cause as much sin and pain and chaos as he can. Come on in, brother. And uh, it's, it's driving a wedge between the relationship. Notice, it starts out, hey, did God really say? Now, um, think about if, you, if you're in a dating relationship now or you're married or you've ever been in a dating relationship. And let's say for whatever reason, maybe you were on a mission trip to Haiti. And so cell phone service is not working very well. And the only way you can do it is by, uh, you know, writing letters. Or maybe even there's email that's kind of spotty that you can get to every once in a while. But imagine if somebody, one of your buddies starts playing a joke on you. And they can go in and they're kind of intercepting your email before they get to you. And they're switching up what your wife or girlfriend is telling you in the email. And it's like, hey, I just want to let you know I hate you. And I'm really mad at you that you've been gone so long. And I may not be here when you get back. But that's really not what your wife or girlfriend said. She said, I love you. I can't wait for you to get home. I miss you. I'm praying for you. If this 
he's really not a friend, this would be an enemy, is getting in there and it can so distort the communication, what's that going to do your relationship? It's going to ruin it, right? And Satan is smart enough to know if he can distort God's communication with us, he can ruin the relationship. So that's where he starts. Did God really say? And then Eve does her best to try to say, well, no, that's not what God said, and tries to clarify. Okay? But then Satan basically starts to go after the consequences. Again, he's going after the covenant relationship. There's no consequences. Don't worry about that. God, you know, God's just a big talker. I know he said all that stuff, but you're going to die. You're not going to die. There's no consequences. And this is the antinomian, anti-law, anti-wrath, anti-consequence type of argument. That still doesn't seem to push Eve over the edge. And so verse 5 is where he really gets her and where he really gets us. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He basically goes after God's character. God's not a good God. I know he acts all nice. He's given you a lot of gifts, but he holds the best gifts back. You can't really trust him. God's really a tyrant. He's really a oppressor. He's really trying to keep you down. He's really trying to make you like a slave. This is not a good covenant relationship. I mean, it seems to me like God's saying, hey, work in my garden, but then you can't eat all the fruits of your labor. Don't take that. You need to rise up. You need to rebel. And listen, that poison got into their heart. And that poison is still in all of our hearts. Okay? And we got to fight against that every day because that's what ruins this covenant relationship. So they eat the forbidden fruit. Verse 6, So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Again, just think personally for a second. Where you are tempted the most to sin, maybe where you struggle the most to give in to sin, it usually has to do with one of these three things. Good for food. It's something about your appetites, the lust of the flesh. Okay? It was a delight to the eyes. Something about possessions, money, the way you look, the way you appear, right? The lust of the eyes. And then the tree was desired to make one wise. The boastful pride of life. Something about prestige and reputation, your significance in life. Okay, we're still struggling with the same three major temptations. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. Sin always is destructive to relationships. Even the sin in the dark, even the sin in our minds, we're like, I'm not actually doing anything. It's just in my mind. I didn't actually scream out loud and cuss that person out. I just cussed them in my mind. Yes, it would probably hurt the relationship worse if you screamed out loud and cussed them publicly. But even the inner mind whispering of, I hate that guy, is going to hurt relationship, is it not? And that may just be a new, helpful, fresh way. Sometimes we can overly think about sin as breaking the rules, which it is. It's not less than that. It's just more than that. We need to learn to see sin. It's a relational breach. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he had this great quote where he said, listen, once you become a Christian, sin, in some sense, gets more serious. Right Now, in some sense, it gets less serious because my sin doesn't send me to hell anymore. Praise the Lord. At the level of consequences, it gets less serious. But at the relational level, it gets more serious because when I'm a non-Christian and I sin, it's kind of like breaking the law of the state. It's kind of like getting a traffic ticket, Right? 
If you're driving down 280 today and you go 15 miles an hour over the speed limit and a cop pulls you over and he gives you a ticket, you're probably going to feel bad. But you're going to feel bad. Why? Because, well, darn it, now I've got to pay a $200 fine. I don't like that. But it doesn't really personally hurt you because it's not like you had a relationship with that state trooper. Whereas you think about your best friend, your roommate, your wife, your husband, whoever, if you tell a lie to that person and then you get caught, what's the consequence? There's no $200 fine. I mean, it doesn't work that way in my marriage, okay? Uh, I don't know if it works that way in your marriage, okay? There's no necessarily fine, but it ought to hurt me worse. Why? Because I grieve the heart of my wife. Does that make sense? And that's the way, guys, we ought to think about sin. It's not just breaking the rules. It's not less than that. It's more than that. It's a relational breach. And that's what Satan is always after. And here's, guys, it doesn't just break our relationship with God. It doesn't just grieve the Spirit. It also, it always has some effect on our relationship with other people. Do you see that? All sin to some degree, is a form of selfishness. Just think about that. Every time I give in to sin, whether it's big or small, at some level it's making me into more of a selfish person. It's ruining, in some small way at least, my human relationships. Verse 8, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So it's ruining this relationship. They would have used to have been excited to see God, to hear God coming, to talk to Him, to fellowship, and now they run in a sinful fear. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the fruit Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, once sin, in a sense, has poisoned our minds, we start to view God as this tyrant, as this oppressor. And so when God is drawing near, you know, and how does that happen in modern day? It might be your personal reading of the Bible or you're riding around listening to a podcast or you're worshiping on a Sunday morning, but it feels like God is drawing near. We tend to want to cringe and run away. Have any of you ever had the experience where maybe you felt like the Holy Spirit was starting to convict you of something, but you didn't really want to do it? You didn't really want to have to wrestle with it. So part of what you do is you just make yourself busy. Turn on the TV, get in the car, turn on the radio, Go work out. Do something, anything, then be quiet and still and listen to what the Holy Spirit might say to us. But see, guys, that really betrays even a deeper problem is that we assume that conviction's a bad thing. If we're really in Christ, conviction's a good thing because God was not coming that day to give Adam and Eve wrath. He knew what they had done. If he just wanted to give them wrath, he could just lightning bolt, you're dead. You're in hell. He does that with some people. This is kind of a random story, but we had a guy on Beach Project years ago, and um, new Christian, and his uh, discipleship group leader came to me and said, hey, i got a really weird problem. He's like, every time we meet for like small group and we're praying and stuff, this guy keeps praying that the devil would get saved. I was like, that's really interesting. Like in one sense, I admire his uh, evangelistic zeal, okay? You know, he said, yeah, but... That doesn't seem right. I said, yeah, it's not right. So what would you say to him? I said, well, I'd say at least two things. I mean, number one, the Bible clearly says Satan's going to end in hell. 
So in some sense, you're praying against the will of God. So don't do that. It's bad. But I said, this also could be a really great lesson to highlight the grace and the mercy of God. And he's like, how can it be an example to highlight the grace and the mercy of God? And we're about to see it. We're about to read it. Because when Satan sinned and when Satan fell, God didn't come and pursue Satan in mercy and say, where did you go, Lucifer? What did you do, Lucifer? I want you back. When Lucifer rebelled, God just said, to hell with you, literally. Be damned. And God's 100% just to do that. We can't critique God for one second. And here's the point I'm trying to make. When Adam and Eve first sinned, and when we first sinned, God had every right and He would be just as glorious if He had said, to hell with you. Be damned. No second chances. And yet that's not what He does. Because He's a covenant-making, a covenant-keeping, a covenant-renewing God. So He comes after Adam and Eve. He's not a detective trying to solve a mystery. Hey, where'd you guys go? I can't see you. He's coming and saying, I love you guys. What'd you do? Why? You're breaking my heart. And they're still living in this fear. They're running. They're hiding. They're trying to cover up with fig leaves. They're making excuses, right? They're minimizing. They're blame shifting. Sound familiar? I know what we do. I know technically I sinned, but you got to understand the circumstances. Not really my fault. And really what they're doing, and either Matthew Henry or Derek Kidner said this, I can't remember. When we make excuses for our sins, it's like we're putting a hurdle in between us and mercy. It's like we're stiff-arming God. We're like, no, no, I don't want mercy yet. I want to kind of stay in my sin and my self-righteousness for just one more second. It's stupid. We ought to be so quick to confess. We don't have to stay in our guilt and our sin and our shame for one second. Run and confess. Here's what I want us to think about application-wise. Okay? We are not just after academic knowledge in this class. Where is it in your life that you tend to doubt the goodness of God the most? And I was doing a little small group Bible study with some guys one time. We were going through a Bible study, and we were looking at this passage. We were asking that question. And one guy in there, he literally said, Man, I, I, just, I don't think there's any area in my life where I doubt the goodness of God. I think I, I think I really get and understand the goodness of God. And got grown up in church, been a Christian probably since high school or earlier. Worked for a Christian ministry for a little while. Goes to a great church now. He's like, I just, I don't think there's any area in my life where I'm doubting the goodness of God. Okay. A little bit later, a different part of the kind of small group time, we're taking prayer request accountability, and this same guy says, you know, I got to be honest, I've really been struggling with pornography lately. And later, pretty good friends with this guy, we were talking and I was able to say to him, I think you're missing an important connection. When you go and struggle with pornography, that's not just a sin of the lust of the flesh, although it is that. It's not less than that. It's more than that. But there's a root to that that got you there. And here's the root. This guy's married. It's like at some level, you're not trusting the goodness of God to provide you with all the beauty, with all the pleasure, whatever it may be, that you want in the right time the right way. So you're thinking, kind of like Adam and Eve, i got to break a few rules to get the best stuff in life. Does that make sense? So I want us to spend some time this week just kind of prayerfully meditating, thinking, maybe journaling. God, where is it that I'm doubting your goodness, your provision, your care for me? And a lot of times, guys, it does have to do with, I don't like God's timetable. 
I want something now, and he's not giving it to me now, so I'm going to go and get it my own way. So spend some time on that, okay? Um, one of the things that will help us fight sin the most at a very practical level is not just telling ourselves, here's the rules, obey it. Again, that's not bad. <laughs> it's just not good enough most of the time, is it? We've got to spend more time meditating on and worshiping God in light of His graciousness, in light of His generosity, in light of what a great God He is. And then we say, although I really am tempted over here in this area, it's not worth it because God is so good, God is so loving, God is so warm, God has satisfied me so much in so many different ways, I don't want to grieve His heart. I don't want to break fellowship. I don't want to break relationship. Now, let's look at the consequences of their sin, right? There's always consequences to sin. Even for the believer, there will always be some negative consequences for your sin. It's never worth it. So look in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So again, with Satan, it's just wrath, pure wrath. You're condemned, you sinned, you're getting judgment. And even in the judgment on Satan, there's a promise before he gets to the consequences for man and woman of Adam and Eve are going to stay alive. They're not going to die. They're going to have babies. And one day there's going to be a baby. You're going to tempt him. You're going to try to ruin his relationship with me. It's not going to work. He's going to defeat you. You're going to wound him, but he's going to crush you. You're doomed, Satan. Now, he goes into the consequences for the woman. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let me just point out a couple of things that God is doing here with man and woman. The first thing is, notice, he doesn't directly curse them. It's like a glancing blow. He says, woman, I'm not going to directly curse you for your sin, although you deserve it. I'm going to curse your domain. I'm going to curse your relationships, especially in the home. Man... I'm not going to directly curse you, though you deserve it. I'm going to curse your domain. In the area of work, there's going to be a curse there. Now think about this, and what I want us to see is how this plays out, how it fits in with the covenant, okay? But also how there's even grace even in this curse. Remember, we said the bottom line condition of this original covenant was this. God says, I'll satisfy you and you'll serve me. How did mankind break the covenant? As he said, I'm not going to serve you, and I'll go serve myself and be satisfied somewhere else. And that's, that's so much of the nature of sin is, I will find the deepest satisfaction of my heart met somewhere outside of God, outside of God's ways, outside of God's gifts. You just think about it. The average woman, if she's not finding her deepest fulfillment in Christ... Where does she tend to try to find her deepest fulfillment in life? Children, children 
marriage relationships, right? And part of what God's saying is, you're going to try, and it's never going to work. You can have the best marriage on planet Earth. You can have the best family. You can be the best mom. You can be the leader of the PTA, and everybody thinks you have the coolest Instagram post, and it won't satisfy the deepest needs of your heart. And to a man, where does the average man, if he's not finding his deepest fulfillment in Christ, where does he tend to try to find his sense of significance and satisfaction and security in life? It's work. It's work. Right? My name, my reputation, my bank account. What kind of awards am I getting? Even if you're in ministry, how much ministry production am I having? Listen, obviously I'm not saying men don't care about relationships. We do. Obviously I'm not saying women don't care about work. They do. But but here's the main thing that I want you to see. Here's how there's grace, guys, even in the curse. God, in a sense, says this curse is going to have a boomerang effect on you. Because you were made to be satisfied. And you're going to go look for satisfaction in gifts, even in good gifts, like marriage, parenting, work, legitimate jobs. But it's never going to fully satisfy you. And so what it's going to do, in some sense, when you get desperate, is it will drive you back to me. The only one that can really satisfy the depths of your soul. Now, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, at this point, they had no babies. So this is a step of faith for Adam. This is a step of faith saying, I heard the promise that God made us when he was cursing Satan. We're not going to die today. We're going to stay alive. We're going to have babies. I believe him. So I'm going to nickname you Mama, although you don't have any babies yet. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Every time we sin... To the degree that we're really in touch with our own soul and with the Lord, there's a sense of guilt and shame, and we want to run and hide. That instinct to run and hide is not wrong. It's right. It's natural. The problem is we usually try to run and hide in the wrong places, right? Whether that's drowning it with alcohol or TV or music or trying to make excuses, trying to, or maybe a lot of times it's the comparison game. I know what I did was bad, but at least I'm not bad as her. Right, we, we, have, we have myriad of ways to try to cover ourselves, but it never works, just like it didn't work for them. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, and as soon as they heard God, they're like, these fig leaves aren't working. We've got to go find a tree to hide behind. And even that didn't work. They tried excuses. That didn't work. They end up confessing. Derek Kidner said, you can't run from God. You can only really run to him. Right? You can't hide from God. You can only really hide in God. The secret is, I come back to God, the covenant-keeping God, say, I want to still be in covenant with you. I know I broke it. Will you be gracious? Will you be merciful? And he says, yes. They deserve to die that day, but they didn't die. But some little innocent animal did die that day so that God could take their skins and cover their sin and their shame. And this is this foreshadowing of this snake crusher that's going to come one day the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't deserve to die, but he's going to go to the cross. He's going to take the curse of the covenant for his people so that in him we can be robed in a royal righteousness. And then we can enjoy fellowship with God again in the covenant. Okay? So let me pray for us. Father, thank you that we don't live any longer under the covenant of works. But now we live under the covenant of grace. 
that our relationship with you is no longer based upon our performance, but it's based upon the performance of Christ in our place on our behalf. Lord, make us faithful members of this covenant community. Make us faithful wives to you as our husband. That we would love you, that we would adore you, and that out of that overflow of that love, we would want to be loyal to you. We would want to obey. And even when temptation is its strongest, we would be able to say, God has been so good. God has been so kind. God has been so gracious. God has been such a pursuing God to me. I don't want to run away from him. I want to run closer to him, further into him, deeper into him. Make that our heart. Make that our lives. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org.